Hello and welcome to the Classroom Critics Podcast. This is a film studies podcast by teachers. And uh, I'm joined today by two of my esteemed colleagues. First of all, I'll introduce myself. My name is Bill Ivers, and I'm here with Mr. Michael Mulvey and Mr. Walt Freeman. Hello, gentlemen. Hello. Hello. Good morning to you. We just watched a classic film, which we'll discuss today, called Annie Hall. And um, there are many things to bring up about this, but um, coming right off it, you know, there's... I guess we can talk about it first. The um, the film is you know in context with Woody Allen's career, which is uh, I guess you can kind of divide Woody Allen's career in a couple phases. But up until this point, you know he had very much um, gag oriented, strict um, comedies, mm-hmm. and uh, he himself even called this his first somewhat serious movie. Even though you know it is a comedy, but uh, it's a film certainly with a with a message and. Uh, yeah, what do, you, what do you think about that? Is is um, when you see this, do you see this as like the quintessential uh, Woody Allen film? I mean, for me, it's not it's not my favorite Woody Allen film, but I can definitely see it as his kind of landmark movie. Yeah, I think it has movie. that balance between drama and comedy and highbrow, lowbrow type of humor. Mm-hmm. You know, um, the whole thing with the sock full of manure. You know, at the same time that that guy's in line discussing, you know, the, the Columbia professor comes out of nowhere. You know, within the same couple of minutes. So it has that kind of dichotomy to it as well. Mm-hmm. And it seemed, you know, as I understand Woody Allen films, it was a bridge from his earlier films to his later films where, you know, he became you know, known as a filmmaker of serious merit. And, you know, I can see why people would have looked at this film and, and seen a, a vast difference in his approach and and in his style. Yeah, I mean, the films before this one, again, they're, they're gag-driven. Like uh, Love and Death. Yeah, bananas. bananas yeah. Uh, they, they they were all basically vehicles for for his comedy, mm-hmm. right? And this this film is not necessarily I don't view it as a as a vehicle for. I mean, it, obviously it tells more of a story, definitely. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it is told in a very unconventional way for the time, definitely. And um, there are some ga- I don't say gags, but there's a few moments of slapstick, which I, I think we mm-hmm. will get to at some point. But most mostly. It's a um, a dialogue driven um, romance. Romance, yeah. yeah. With with uh, obviously all the the depth of um, of a psychological yeah. And a Valentine card to Diane Keaton, essentially. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I, I see it as him uh, in his early career. He was more Chaplin esque, whereas the the scenes were set up for the jokes. Whereas here, the jokes are an integral part of the plot driving along, so he becomes more like Buster Keaton as a filmmaker who, who really you know, integrated the humor into moving the story along and not just uh, using the scenes as a setup for a joke he's going to do. Right. Yeah, and originally, from what I read, it was supposed to be a murder mystery as well, yeah. you know, yeah. which is kind of bizarre. You know, in Manhattan, murder mystery is the film that he was going to make, essentially. That's, that's the stuff that was edited out of this. <clears throat> right. Yeah, which is amazing. You know, in the scene where she comes to the movie theater and she's irritated, like she j- had just been interviewed, I guess, you know, um, by the police or something. Yeah. You know, so. There's no trace. I mean, there's very little trace of any murder right. mystery. Yeah. And that's pro- you know, kind of the only thing I can really think off the top of my head. Yeah. But, I mean, this is not just a landmark film 
for Woody Allen, I mean, if you think about it in, in its context with film history, it's a, it's a landmark film in terms of romantic comedy for that genre, if you mm-hmm. think about it. Um, you know, it seems to me that a lot of the romantic comedies before this film kind of dealt with kind of external um, divides between the characters. You know, you have a you know, boy meets girl, um, you know, and you know that somehow they're going to fall in love. They seem to be just, you know, they're separated by certain things, whether it's uh, class differences like mm-hmm. it happened one night or that, that sort of thing, or they're, they're separated or they're, you know, divided by, what you know, just external things. But in this film, in any hall, it seems like the only things that really come between them are, are things psychologically. Mm-hmm. Which I think is was, was very unique. And their values or whatever, yeah. Yeah, and, mm-hmm. and it's just it doesn't seem to me like it has a, really a predecessor. You know, it's just kind of like one of the first, um, if not the first, you know, New York uh, romantic comedy. Right, if, where New York's portrayed in a romantic way, definitely. You know, maybe like an affair to remember or something like that, but nothing yeah. in a comedic way, definitely. Right. You know, where the characters are obviously this this film is populated by characters who are. You know, who need psychoanalysis? They mm-hmm. have, uh, you know, neuro- talk about my analyst. That yeah, like it's you know commonality. Yeah, they're very neurotic. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, Why they're, are you so hostile? You know, <laughs> yeah. you know, there's no hostility whatsoever. I mean, if that's hostile, <laughs> not right. in my neighborhood. But, yeah, you know. <laughs> exactly. Where I just you don't see that in the Cary. I mean, although I love right. them, you know, um, you don't see that in the Cary Grant, you know, romantic comedies mm-hmm. and the. Yeah, these are normal everyday people that are, you know, having a movie made about them. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not rich and famous. They're not, you know, these. You know, I have no idea really what Andy does for a living when you get right down to it. You know. Yeah, the, the, you know? I, I didn't get that. Doesn't yeah. come across right. at all. Yeah. <laughs> what but, you do? I think you yeah. see too in those other movies. You know, to fail to remember, those movies are set in New York, but in Woody Allen's film, New York's a character. Right. I mean, he he does a lot of. Cinema, cinematography to differentiate between New York and California, for mm-hmm. example. It's all sunlit and white, right. and then here, you know, New York is all gray, and there's always that ambient noise, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, the, the cities are... Which he himself dark. says that, you know, he can't live without. Yeah. You know, because when he was with Mia Farrow, she used to have a country home in Connecticut, and he said he hated going there because, there, you know, there was no noise. Mm-hmm. And he loved being able to call up at 3 o'clock in the morning at Chinese food. Mm-hmm. No, and you can't do that in Litchfield, Connecticut. Oh yeah, you know. Yeah, so, no, you know. it's hilarious when he, you know, the scenes in Los Angeles. You know, obviously he looks like a total fish out of water. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone's in white and you know wearing tropical shirts or whatever. And right. He's sitting there with his tweed jacket and put a flannel <laughs> shirt under it. And always yeah. had a t-shirt under that. It's a very three-layered outfit mm-hmm. throughout yeah. it. It just the, the three layers don't seem to go together with like him yeah. with you know he's he's the neurotic uh, New York guy who needs an analyst but he likes to watch the Knicks on TV. Right. You know, he's he's, he's yeah. equally at home discussing Sartre as he is watching the Knicks. So. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. You know, grew up under the roller coaster <laughs> of Coney Island, you know. Right. So, you know, very non-patrician type of upbringing, you know. Exactly. Yeah. And it's a predecessor to many other, you know, to the style of comedy that would um, kind of manifest itself with different, other, you know, different other, you know, yeah, acts. Like grainy comedies. Yeah, you know, definitely. I mean, I think you know, a lot of Seinfeld's material mm-hmm. and his approach, you know, his show was is very much rooted in. I could think it was a, a debt to Annie Hall and mm-hmm. you know Woody Allen's approach to the romantic comedy. I, I was laughing because you. We mentioned that during the filming about how you know it's very Seinfeld esque or Seinfeld is very Annie Hall esque. But then I, uh, the scene where they pan by and there's Jeff Goldblum standing there and he's his line is uh, I forgot my mantra. 
And then I'm thinking of Kramer. Mm-hmm. He's going to be in the Woody Allen film, and his whole only line is, these pretzels are making me thirsty, mm-hmm. but he can't get the line right. And I just that, that whole scene just reminded me. I mean, I, I think specifically that's what they were making fun of. Right, right, right. And uh, what's funny, I think the film that follows this in Woody Allen's career is a um, kind of a, a Bergman-esque yeah, uh, drama. It's Interiors, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, the one that comes before Annie Hall, I think, is Love and, Love right. and Death. Yep. So, you know, he's such a diverse filmmaker. He just, in it just, I think Love and Death is, you can kind of see that Annie Hall's a film like that could follow a film like Love and Death, you mm-hmm. know, with some of the themes that he... Yeah, conveys. You know, keep in mind, love and death too. Like you know, the Napoleonic Wars or whatever. I mean, it has like a huge, you know, storyline behind it, and they're quoting like you know philosophers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, while you know, could you come over here and hold my bosom while I hang this painting? <laughs> you know, that, you know that line too, and it's you know. Yeah. So there's that again, blend of yes. the intellectual and the lowbrow humor. You know? Right. Well, I like the uh, you know, and, and toward the end, there's this scene where he's watching the play that he was writing, and it's. It's essentially an actor playing him and an actor playing Diane Keaton, and then he just looks at the camera and says, "What can I say? It was my first play." Mm-hmm. And you know, he's he's almost nodding to his own earlier work, which which right. was very you know, it's all a reflection of well, him. When but, he worked for Sid Caesar too, and he's like, <laughs> you know, you know, writing comedy for him and just kind of smiling like, hey. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, like, what am I doing? I'm getting oh, yeah. paid. I'm getting paid. Yeah. yeah. Right. Right. And um, yeah, once again, I mean, the, the, the jokes exist in any hall, not. Um, well, the movie doesn't exist for the jokes, you know. Right. It's like the jokes. It's not a pause the, afterwards to let the audience right. have its laugh or whatever. Right. Where some movies do that. But right. I thought, you know, I thought it was odd structure-wise. So in the very beginning, it was very heavy on the breaking the fourth wall. Mm-hmm. You know, bringing in was it Rod McEwen? Not Rod McEwen. Um, Marshall. No, Marshall. No, you're right. You're right. Marshall okay. McEwen. And 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 pulling him just. Oh, I happen to have him right, right. here. And then it kind of a large chunk in the middle it gets away from that and it, and it becomes a very traditional romantic film. And then sort of towards the end, he starts to to bring that out again. There's takes to the camera and yep. uh, you know non sequiturs and I um, I'm not sure why uh, you know that would be something I would want to discuss with students like mm-hmm. what, what does that do to the story or, yeah. or not do um, right. I don't know I'm just, no yeah absolutely I mean it, there is a surrealism to the movie where um, you know it is rooted in a lot of his you know his reality what he owns in, in a lot of you know experiences that we have in, in romance and dating but. You know, there are things that, you know, like you said, like breaking the fourth wall or, you know, suddenly appearing in an, in an animated part okay. of the film or yeah. talking talking to a horse or c- characters who suddenly start yeah. talking to There's each other. There's the winner of the Truman Capote lookalike contest. <laughs> right. You know, right. Right, right. Yeah. There is a, sur- a surrealism to the film mm-hmm. um, or, or them just sort of appearing uh, in, in Woody Allen's childhood. Right, things like that, and, and, and always. I was the greatest dancer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, or um, you know, then obviously there's a scene where the um, you know the two families are, are right. dining at East. And it's interesting because you know there's the the, the current day family, you know, Annie Hall's family, and obviously suddenly you have Woody Allen's uh, family at a split screen. Mm-hmm. But not only that, but it's it's Woody Allen's family, Back child childhood right. family. So, I mean, that's that's mm-hmm. that's pretty. What do you? What sins are you atoning for? <laughs> right. Yeah. So just the way the story is told is is very mm-hmm. unconventional, and not to mention that it's not um, in chronological order. You know, it's it's uh, yeah. all over the place. You know, one scene it, it will be at the beginning of their relationship, and then you know, we'll cut suddenly to you know the the breaking up mm-hmm. of, of their of their relationship. Or when he comes over to kill the spider or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 kind of. Um, but it works, you know. It's it's not. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't think it's right. disjointed. I don't think it's. Um, 
like something plot or anything. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't take you out of the out of the movie. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think it's but, it's part of the. I think it's part of the movie's um, merits is, is mm-hmm. the fact that it does that. It's creatively edited. And I think it appeals to everyone too, because I mean, who hasn't been sitting in a line at a movie theater and heard some blowhard, you know, <laughs> talking about this and that? I remember going to see a movie at the Nickelodeon in Boston, and the advertisement for the movie Surviving Picasso was up, mm-hmm. and my friend has, you know, no idea who Picasso was, and that guy had cut off his ear, and some woman just finally started shaking her head, no, 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 <laughs> gave no, a no, lecture, like, and I just turned to my friend and said, yes, just <laughs> because yeah, you know I can't stand those people in line. So I mean, that I always love yes. that part. Oh yeah. You know? No, I mean, the, the best comedy kind of creates or, or reminds you of common experiences and, and, and points out the humor of that. Um, you look like you were about to say something. No, I just, I was, uh, I, have, I wanted to respond to all of that in, in different ways. I remember standing in line to see um, Raising Arizona, the Coen brothers. Mm-hmm. Nobody knew anything about them, and, and we didn't know what the movie was about. I just heard that it was very good, and I, I was mentioning to my wife, you know what is this movie about? And this guy behind me is like, it's it's a comedy about their an attempt to raise the sunken battleship, the Arizona. <laughs> of course it is. <laughs> so I was yeah. like, well, why would you say that? I mean, what what are you trying yeah, to if do? You because, don't know, don't you know? Yeah. Open your mouth. Yeah. In, in five minutes, we're going to find that right. that's not it at and all. Go find him in the movie theater and go really. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. But I was I was funny. I was laughing because I saw this when I was sixteen, and I remember not when I first saw it. I remember not responding so much to the the pioneering story structure telling. Um, I didn't quite get that that was so different uh, though it was, and that was a failing on my part as a sixteen year old, not on the movie. But I remember responding to a lot to the the shtick and the physical jokes, the sneezing into the cocaine. Yeah, uh, but as I watch it now, uh, yeah. you know, I, I realize how much of a departure it was. But I was also just laughing at the it's a cultural touchstone of the 70s mm-hmm. the fashion oh yeah you know and they talk that. about the whole fact that New York was a dying city or whatever the article in the New York magazine you know and that was at the time I mean I think it was that year or the year before when New York City went bankrupt mm-hmm. you know and so there were you know it's kind of like people were you know crime was huge people were leaving in droves you know sure so no it does I mean the, the film does kind of like serve as almost like an artifact you know mm-hmm. uh, it kind of drops you into the I mean I was you know, I'm not holding this over your head, folks, but uh, I, I was not, I mean, I was only a right. baby, uh, a little kid. You, know, you were barely toddler. born then, right? Yeah, but I feel when I watch the film that I'm just sort of dropped into New York, uh, and, you know, at least the 1970s New York. And it, the it's, village area as well. Yeah, yeah I so. mean, now, it's often <clears throat> it's heralded as Woody Allen's great achievement. It's kind of like uh, one, it's a film that gets the most notoriety. It's, it's it won Best Picture mm-hmm. in 77. Over but, Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and the thing is, that for me, the mo- even though I, I do love the movie, it seems to be one of his most dated movies uh, in that I, I feel like I'm... Um, again, watching the 70s? Watching, yeah. yeah. It, it's... Um, I think definitely the Annie Hall look, you know, remember, because, um, you know, you weren't around, but I remember that, you know, like the Annie Hall look was huge, you know, and like wearing the floppy ties and the baggy shirts yeah. and the vests, you know, for yeah. her, you know, that was the rage, mm-hmm. you know, to think that that could spur on a fashion, you know, it's just, it's unbelievable. But I don't think that that type of fashion is necessarily left. I think it's morphed, you know. But, sure, sure. You know, and I think, you know, um, I remember a couple of years later, it kind of had a renaissance of sorts as well. Like when I was going to college in 84, there was... You know, the Annie Hall look was kind of coming back. Sure. You know, and it's just, I remember it being referred to as the Annie Hall look. That's funny. Yeah. You know? That's funny. So. It's funny because uh, you, you mentioned the relevance to, uh, to students of bringing certain things up with the students. And uh, what I showed this to, you know, in a film class, uh, you know, filled with high school students, uh, 
the one of the obstacles is the uh, you know the references. Not mm-hmm. only the references to the present day '70s back then, you know, and there are there's some of that, uh, but also just some of the again just the, the historical you know perhaps artistic references that Woody Allen makes. Well, the Truman Capote reference, nobody you know unless you're. You know, somebody reads Truman Capote or knows who he is, you know, go right over your head. Right. Yeah, I point that out to the kids because we've just watched, you know, Breakfast at Tiffany's. So, you know, that's the guy who wrote the, the, you know, the book or whatever, the short story. But so, you know, there's that. Yeah. And the reference to the characters from In Cold Blood that Capote wrote. And he said he was afraid, aren't you afraid of getting murdered? And I forget the names, but he mentions the two names Mm -hmm. of the two guys that were the two murderers in In Cold Blood. Right. Uh, Mm -hmm. I, I have a question now. Um. The Academy Awards are famous for, for picking particular films over other films that people look back on and go, you know, you're crazy. And you mentioned this beat out Star Wars mm-hmm. for Best Picture. I mean, I know Quentin Tarantino gripes about uh, Forrest Gump beating out Pulp Fiction, though I think that Forrest Gump is held up much better as a picture. Uh, but anyway, going mm-hmm. back, I, you know, I look at that and I'm thinking to myself, you know, Star Wars had such a, 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 a of an impact, but so did Annie Hall. Right. And we oftentimes look at people, you know, at the past as people making, you know, ignorant or uninformed decisions. But in the long run, you would have to say that despite the fact that Star Wars changed the summer blockbuster, mm-hmm. Annie Hall changed the structure of storytelling. Oh, at, I think it was definitely worthy yeah. of its awards. Yeah. You know, she should have won, definitely. You know, and, um, you know, I think, you know, yeah, I don't I don't feel like they made a mistake. It was one of the only right. comedies because prior to that, the only comedy that had won was It Happened One Night. You know, and that was in 34. This is in 77, so it was like 43 years between comedies winning. If you think about it, Happened One Night did the same thing for the romantic comedy then in mm-hmm. 1934, uh, and many other, which, which would be a, you know, a different show, but um, it, it's kind of a companion piece, you know, uh, Annie Hall doing what for the romantic comedy. Right. When Harry Met Sally would never have been made without, you know, it's de- that's oh, yeah. definitely a Woody Allen feel to it. Oh, big time. You know, the New York, you know, aspect of it, the, you know, the talking to the camera, the interviews of the people in between the scenes, you know, that's all Woody Allen. Sure. And I, I think it was probably unrealistic to think that uh, a science fiction film like Star Wars could have won Best Picture yeah. in 77. Well, um, it also was like Turning Point, I think, as well. Have you ever seen the Turning Point? No. Yeah, it's the one about um, Bell- Shirley MacLaine. And, ballet, right? Yeah. Okay. Shirley MacLaine and... Um, and and Bancroft, there we go. Yes, yes. Ballet stars that were, you know, have you know, chew the scenery type of movie. Sure, you know, sure. Like soap opera ish. Right. Mikhail Boroshnikov, you know, was in it. That's <laughs> right. I've never seen that. I was befuddled by it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, what do you, do you think the um, the disjointed narration uh, works well in this film? I mean, if you think about it, it's it, it is extremely creative, and once again, it's just it's yeah. it's kind of all over the place. I think it works as a whole. So I mean, you know, like. You could micromanage and, you know, go through every little thing. Should this be here? Should that be, you know, that's the editing process or whatever. But, you know, like, I'm, I still like the movie. Here it is, you know, 39 years later. Sure. You know, so. Yeah, it, and it does hold up. And I, the, the, the references, I think, um, you know, the ones that are uniquely 70s. Right. You know, they, they still they still hold up. Well, especially when Paul Simon comes on and I say to the kids, you know, that's Paul Simon and just kind of like the bird, you know, the bird is chirping or whatever. <laughs> but, you know, yeah, and then they, he makes a reference. So we're going to go over to uh, meet up with Jack and Angelica, you yeah. know, which, you know, the kids don't get that reference either, you know. I wonder so if which, Jack, I wonder if he wanted royalties for that. Yeah. Mention. Right. <laughs> you know, so. Well, you yeah. watch the film today and, and so much has, has followed suit with the disjointed storytelling and the breaking the fourth wall that. 
the pioneering aspect of that isn't really seen much anymore. But, no. but and yet you said you said your kids still respond very favorably to that yeah. to the story. So it just yeah. goes to show you that there's you know there's there's more to it than just that aspect, mm-hmm. um, and it, it still resonates as a story despite the bizarre structure. Yeah, I mean the, thematically, it, it's it's universal. You know, as, as universal appeal. You know, the idea of um, of romance being something that's absurd, painful. Um, Almost, yeah. yeah, but something we all still right. strive for, and, and something and that gets, you travel three thousand miles to, you know, try to save or whatever as well, you know, right. only, to, only to fail, you know. Right, and um, I mean, we could talk about that, theme, you know, the thematic aspects of of the, of the film, right? Uh, if you'd like, um, you know, what do you think about the, the film's message? You know, what's what's the takeaway? Would you say? I don't know that there's one, you know, I mean, as far as that goes, but in terms of romance, I mean, I think the thesis of the film. I mean, he pretty much states it, you know, towards the end, is that, you know, about the, the eggs, mm-hmm. you know, we need the eggs kind of thing. Right. It's it's ridiculous. It that seems like old times that she's singing. and Yeah. Right. Kind of, it's definitely a nostalgic feel, you know, going back to Coney Island or whatever as well, you know, he's sure. trying to put forth a little bit of nostalgia, and so you feel that as well. Definitely. You know? Right, right. And at least, you know, it's not, they broke up and they hate each other afterwards, too. They still meet up. Yeah, you know. still there's there's a wistfulness to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny I'm, the Paul Simon song still crazy after all these years. I right. met my old lover on the street last night. I wonder if that arose from this or mm-hmm. or there was a connection because he's you know he's in the film and right. Uh, I I very much got that vibe as I watched that mm-hmm. scene and and it's shot in a very so a lot of the shots throughout the film are very intimate. They're right there. They're in the bedroom. They're in the bed. But that one, the camera's you know at, at a remove, and we hear him talking over it, and then you see them through a window. Mm-hmm. We don't actually see much of the dialogue, and then they, they say goodbye, and so there's a distance at that point that was kind of yeah. compelling. Yeah. And who would you know like uh, Shelley Duvall's in it too, and it's just like you know, who you know? Oh my, you know, I haven't seen Shelley Duvall in thirty years and something. You know what I mean? <laughs> so it's just it's you know it's kind of a, an anomaly like that too. So. Right. And uh, Carol Kane, she's, yeah. she's still around, but right. she's become here and there. But yeah, mm-hmm. she's become a type now. She was very appealing in the film. Mm-hmm. I'm not a big Shelley Duvall fan. I, I, right. I never enjoyed her cinematic presence. But mm-hmm. uh, uh, and if you're listening to this, Shelley, sorry. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She is just un- she. She's not going to like our podcast. Right. No, I, I just I, I never understood her appeal as an actor. I've seen her. You know, she was The Shining. Yeah. She was in um, Popeye. Mm-hmm. Uh, this. Well, the other Altman films too, you know, yeah. that she was in, and she's responsible for that fairy tale theater that was on Showtime. So she, I think she's a good filmmaker. Yeah. I remember her being in Roxanne, that Steve Martin film. You know, and she was good in that. I don't remember her in that. Yeah, she was one of Daryl Hannah's characters' friends. Okay, in the movie, but okay, yeah, but Carol Kane, yeah, I mean, you know, she had just been nominated for Hester Street a couple years before, you know, so and you know hadn't yet kind of gone on to Taxi. You know, because she won a, I think she won an Emmy Award for her performance on Taxi, you know, as Laka's wife, you know. And so, you know, she definitely had an impact from that movie as well. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the film's message is, is fairly pessimistic. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not unique to Woody Allen. I mean, Woody Allen, a lot of his work is, you know, a study in pessimism. Yeah. And, uh, well, I think she says it best, too, talking about Carol Kane. Her character says, oh, no, I really appreciate being reduced to a cultural stereotype. <laughs> you know, which, you know, essentially he does. You right. Know? Yeah. And there's a line, uh, I think, that can often be overlooked in the film, which I think is an extremely important line, where he's uh, trying to figure out what happened with Annie, and he's walking through the streets, and okay, in, a, in a surreal moment, he turns and talks to an old lady with a, I think mm-hmm. with a shopping bag right. in the street. 
and uh, the old lady just basically says, you know what, love fades. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's kind of like one of the, the theories of the film is that, you know, we, we go through all this, um, you know, the, 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 the magic of romance and, you know, the excitement of romance, but also uh, in the end, it, it fizzles out, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's exactly what happens in the, in the film. Right. Uh, which kind of, it's interesting because the original title of the movie was Anadonia. Mm-hmm. You know, which is a condition of not being able to enjoy oneself. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, not uh, not being able to have fun, mm-hmm. and that, that's kind of like Woody Allen's character in this. Alvy, he's just in, in every movie practically too. You know? Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's just. Um, you know, I, I, I'm forgetting the scene. I'm drawing a blank, but uh, basically, he's accused at, at, at some point of not being able to enjoy himself. Mm-hmm. You know, I, the, the scene with the cocaine. I think is is one of them where, you know, Tony you know, Roberts' character often says it to him as well. Yeah, you know, you're in L.A. This is awesome. Like, you know, and he doesn't, you know, embrace it. You know, it's perfect yeah. weather. You know, you, you know, you're never willing to to try twins, anything. Now. It's twins. Sixteen year old twins. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. So, it, and that's that's the thing. You know, in the end, he it, he comes up empty. I mean, isn't that the I don't feel like he's, you know, like lost empty though. You know what I mean? It's, it's, you know, knowing his personal life. I mean, he's had his ups and downs or whatever. But I mean, I don't even think the character. I think the character will move on and like have another, you know, important right. romance. It's a cycle, I guess. Yeah. Is, is kind of what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But in the end, it's not. According to this movie, it's not something that lasts. That, right. That has a, it has a shelf it's life. Fleeting. Yeah. And uh, which you know he's been married in the film twice. Mm-hmm. Uh, he goes through girls relatively quickly um, and he's really earnestly seeking uh, fulfillment I think he's, right. he, he wants the romanticized or, or, or what he believes to be the the, the, the bliss of love mm-hmm. but, um, well it's hard to do that when you bring your you know potential lover you bring your lover to the sorrow and the pity <laughs> you, know? Right. I mean, you know what kind of message does that send he's, you know, a, he's considered it a victory that she right. did that well that end. yeah exactly yeah. that you know he left his impact on her but I think there are vast cultural stereotypes or you know vast cultural differences between the characters that are incapable of being overcome you know as well you know like the whole scene of the families or whatever you know the quiet dinner you know compared to the loud you know she's stealing she can steal you know or whatever Mm -hmm. you know that loudness or whatever it's never going to mesh you know Mm -hmm. it's just yeah he's he's comfortable with his neuroses he's he's comfortable there, yeah. in his own skin. He knows who he is. He, he enjoys the fact that he can say, I've been in, in therapy for 15 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, he tries to make her into him. He introduces right. her to analysis and is giving her all the books on death. And mm-hmm. some of it sticks. I mean, she, you know, um, the book on death ends up back in the carton and she sees it, but she puts the other books on top of it. She takes the, her date later to the, the sorrow and the pity. Mm-hmm. And so, but, and she embraced analysis as well. So, right. I don't know, there's... There's something about the. Does, does he take anything away from her, though? I mean, he, you know, she becomes, she absorbs part of him, but he doesn't really change much, does he? I don't know. I don't know that he does. Yeah, I mean, she, he doesn't leave. He's not like a hopeless romantic, but I, I think to some degree maybe he is because I mean, at least he keeps on trying. You know what I mean? So. I mean, I think perhaps he learns something. Mm-hmm. So it, part of his takeaway is perhaps the the, the knowledge that yeah, um, even the most beautiful of relationships do have a shelf life right. and that's just the reality of it mm-hmm. so there's a certain acceptance I think at the end of the film and um, that's it's resolved I think by his acceptance of um, of the whole situation of, of love fading let's, uh, let's take a quick break um, and we will re- be right back with some more thoughts on Annie Hall 
We are back, and um, we're going to discuss some um, Woody Allen tropes, film, um, films that very much have his stamp on them. Uh, when you've seen a Woody Allen film, you've seen a film that is uniquely his, that has his fingerprints all over it, and um, Andy Hall obviously is no exception. But um, let's talk about that. What makes a Woody Allen film a Woody Allen film? I think first for me is, you know, like nostalgia. You know, like he just always harkens back to like, you know, the, you know, um, radio days, you know, in particular. You know, that's one of my favorite movies. And, you know, the it was like one of those movies that I stumbled upon on like Sunday morning on, you know, what used to be, you know, WSBK in, you know, Boston or whatever and watched it and just kind of fell in love with it, you know, probably like two years after it had been released, you know. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's like all about nostalgia. You yeah. Know? And I think there's definitely that element to all of his movies. Midnight in Paris, he's going to open a nostalgia store, that. you know. What's interesting is that for someone who's so pessimistic mm-hmm. um, in Woody Allen. Who longingly looks back romantically. In, at in, his, in an ide- idealistic way. Right. And, uh, and he definitely believes, as the thesis of Midnight in Paris, is the idea of the golden age fallacy that right. it was you know things was were better better than, better yeah. than you know the, it was yeah. more romantic of a period. I think there's some of that with uh, with Annie Hall where he's looking back on his relationship. Um, it, you know, obviously he, he brings up the realities of it, but there's often a, you know a, a romanticizing of, of or kind of an idealistic way of looking at uh, what he wants his romance to be. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I think most films have a romantic, you know, you know, element to them as well. Yeah. You know, regardless if it's a drama or, you know. Sure. You know, but I think like you, you know, then there's in contrast that like films like Matchpoint and Crimes and Misdemeanors, which are essentially the same story but just you know kind of told in different cities and you know different characters or whatever. Yeah. You know that sinisterness, that you know moral bankruptcy, you know, bereft of morality type sure. of you know feel to them. That's definitely one of his. Uh, <clears throat> Areas of interest, you know, mm-hmm. um, like getting away with it. Yeah, people yeah. who seemingly are normal, or at least relatively I, normal, yeah. are they capable of great immorality? Mm-hmm. And, and often yeah, it's horrible murder. things. Yeah, like um, Judah and Crimes and Misdemeanors. Mm-hmm. You know, this esteemed doctor, uh, optometrist, I think, and, and he, I think so, yeah. he's he's an honored man, very respected in his community, mm-hmm. who gets mixed up with a um, a woman who's kind of a loose cannon who threatens to make a mess of his life and mm-hmm. he finds himself entertaining and then actually going through um, hiring yeah hiring his brother you know, his brother who's, who's been estranged from him because they have different you know, lives his brother's been in and out of you know trouble in jail yeah. or whatever and all of a sudden now he wants to connect with them and it, it, it is a study a lot of that film is a study of um, I'm talking about crimes and misdemeanors uh, whether or not there's a a morality to, to well, a innate morality to, to mm-hmm. life, you know. Yeah, I think it raises the question, like, who's the worst person, you know, right. in that situation, the brother or him? Yeah. You know, like, I've led an ideal life and you've led a horrible life, but I'm the one who's seeking you out to do my dirty work for me. Sure. You know? And if I can get away with it, right. if the character can get away with it, you know, and he can't, and he doesn't allow himself to suffer the guilt, mm-hmm. is it, does it make it okay? Right. You know who you know. It's, it, obviously, the, the story also deals with you know the idea of something you know God writing uh, morality and you know on stone tablets and mm-hmm. whether or not mor- there is such thing as morality or is it a matter of opinion? Right. You know, and 
there's not some. I mean, it, it's rare that you get a Woody Allen movie without kind of addressing the concept of of God or something, mm-hmm. you know, or some existential type of you know yeah, feeling, yeah, or something. You know, I'm not sure if it comes up in Annie Hall, but. Well, making definitely. love to you is a Kafka experience. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, there's definitely a philosophy thrown in there. Oh no doubt. You know? Oh yeah. Yeah. Woody Allen. What makes a Woody Allen film his? Well, I think the Woody Allen makes Woody Allen film is the Woody Allen character, the stammering, uh, neurotic. Even when Woody Allen, you know, is not playing it, you're John Cusack and Bullets <clears throat> Over Broadway. And look at how much, how many characters you've seen that have adopted that style of delivery over the years. You know, Jeff Goldblum, uh, Jesse Eisenberg. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and there's more, but uh, those are two. Who starred in Woody Allen films, too. Yeah. You know, so. But there's always that, that element, and it's not a stammering speech impediment. It's a stammering out of, of neuroses where the brain is working faster mm-hmm. than the mouth, and, uh, mm-hmm. and he's trying to get it out, but he's also hesitant, and, and so that seems to be uh, very much a signature part sure. of it. Right. Yet Woody Allen says often throughout his career in, in interviews that there's, there's very little autobiographical right. um, nature in his films you know yeah. that it's the characters that are not him and he says that it's actually a fallacy it's a mistake to sort of view him or view Albie Singer as kind of like a surrogate Woody mm-hmm. Allen uh, he, he claims that he's the guy at the end of the day who doesn't go home and brood over uh, you know existentialist philosophy he goes home and watches the Knicks and, and right pop, and or plays you know saxophone at the bar on Monday night but right. is that disingenuous yeah. because I think you have to think about those yeah. things to write about them I know deeply. how could it be so pervasive throughout all of his films if it's not somewhat autobiographical somewhere yeah it's, it's it's almost inevitable it's going to happen well because Woody Allen's not his real name I mean obviously so that's a character he's kind of created as well yeah persona. Sure in his real life so this is yeah. common persona. Yeah. but then you know he even has those scenes like in Annie Hall where he's watching two people play him and Diane Keaton in a play about himself, you know, that sort of meta reality. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, then he says no, but then you have Albie Singer going home and watching the Knicks, and, mm-hmm. you know, here's, right. here's him going home watching the Knicks. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, I mean, I can understand where you are separate from an on screen persona, but there's still a projection of you in there, I think. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, look, look, how could you do not? I yeah. mean, you know, it's such a personal, you know, thing making a, I would think, making a film. I think, you know, you know, even Tom Cruise, who plays a type, I think that Tom Cruise is playing what he thinks he is mm-hmm. in there. Yeah. And John Wayne clearly embracing his values. And, right. Uh, yeah. So Clint Eastwood, who we're going to talk about in another podcast. Sure. Uh, yeah, and I think it's, you know, the old adage that, you know, you write what you know, and, and you're often best suited to write about what you what you know mm-hmm. when you're written. I think it's the case with Woody Allen. You know, he knows New York. He he knows the types of people he populates his stories with. Um, he says that he, I've heard him say in an interview that he would love to write a movie of, you know, whatever medieval story about, mm-hmm. you know, an, an epic war or something like that, but he's, he just doesn't know anything about that, right. so he doesn't write it. He said he, in fact, one of Woody Allen's uh, favorite films, if you can believe it, uh, is Shane, mm-hmm. the Western. And he said he would love to write, be able to write a Western, but... Uh, he said he would have, he wouldn't know where to begin. Right. I couldn't imagine. <laughs> Could you, um, you know, and actually, if he actually appeared in the film, I mean that he says that's a great disadvantage for him as an actor. He says that um, sometimes people just laugh just to see him on the screen. You know, mm-hmm. he'll come. I mean, imagine a western, right? With Woody Allen. I can see <laughs> the thing something like Love and Death or something like that. You know, when he was dressed up as the, you know, the, um, the soldier. You know, like when they stumbled upon the, you know, the dead body. Oh, that was a village idiot. Well, what did you do, place? You know what I mean? So that you know, like I could see him being that type of cowboy. 
Sure. You know what I mean? But it would, you know, be kind of tongue-in-cheek like that, yeah. Yeah. Whether or not he could do the heavy drama like Shane would be another, you know, he's, I think he's capable of anything, but, you know. Shane would come back. Right, yeah. And the relationship would not be the same, yeah. and he would then move on. Yes. Could he do a Raiders of the Lost Ark type of film? You know what I mean? Yeah. Could he do a Star Wars, you know? So. He is doing a series for um, yeah. Yahoo. Is it mm-hmm. Yahoo? I believe so, yeah. Or something like that. It's mm-hmm. like it's like a web series or yeah. something. I've heard nothing about it except for the fact that he's doing it and that he's he's actually come out in you know in public saying that he regrets doing it. Doing it. Like yeah. he, he says, I have no idea what I'm doing. Uh, this is probably going to be a really bad idea. Mm-hmm. But here yeah, goes nothing. There was one you taught me about when we we were watching Woody Allen movies because you were better versed. We when we spent those two years where we had lunch together, we watched movies every day uh, about his. Um, how he pans the camera, mm-hmm. something like that. You were talking about that. Yeah, I mean, he's not. I think he, there's there's not a lot of creativity in terms of uh, camera angles or, um, you know, I guess to use a cliche, no camera work that really calls attention to itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, no showiness. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, he he likes quick takes as a filmmaker. He said that he likes to, you know, he produces a film every single year. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have a very long shooting schedule uh, right. he, he has to have actors come in and out pretty quickly because they do most of the big names that do a Woody Allen film are doing the film between big yeah, other projects big yeah. projects and getting paid nothing I mean right. pretty much like you know scale or something like yeah. that yeah so, so that lends itself to actually I think some interesting filmmaking mm-hmm. um, you know he doesn't necessarily take a long time to um, craft a scene it, so the, the camera does seem to sort of just sort of sit there and you know there, there are cuts of course but the, it's very I think often you'll see a Woody Allen scene where the camera kind of just and characters kind of go in and out of the shot you know and, and rather than have the camera necessarily cut to a character talking and then cut to the next character I think isn't, isn't all, there isn't all that much like over the shoulder mm-hmm. kind of shots um, yeah no big you know pans like in Shawshank Redemption or something like no. the, the opening you know no so it's often yeah. just like medium shot mm-hmm Characters kind of not a lot of close-ups either when you get right down to it. Not at all. Yeah. No, and, and in fact, in Woody Allen, I think one of the most powerful close-ups of Woody Allen, in Annie Hall, uh, one of the most powerful close-ups. It's, I think it's one of the most emotional high points of the film is when he realizes that he's kind of made a mistake. Um, when you have that kind of that, that scene with the with the lobsters, the second mm-hmm. scene with the right. new, with the new girl, <laughs> yep. and he's you know trying to interact with her, make jokes, and he and she just doesn't get him. You know, and then there's that that cut to him, kind of a close up of his face, kind of like, you know, what am I, what am I doing? What have I done? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, she doesn't, she doesn't get me. Kind yeah. Of thing. I always seen those two scenes though. They're eating a lot of lobster for two mm-hmm. people. Yeah. I don't right. Know. I think it's comedic to have yeah. a bunch of lobsters yeah. on the loose, yeah. but still, I was like, I'm thinking to myself, man, that's a. Yeah, a and a little bit of slapstick, I think, in the first lobster scene when he's, you know, he takes the boat paddle and. You know, hits the hits the lamp. You know, mm-hmm. a little bit of that. It's her too, by mistake. Pokes her with it, and he pokes her with a tennis racket yeah. earlier too. Right. I don't know if that's what right. that means, but no, it's, he it's, does. He, there is, you know, he he loves the old comics, you know, so that's going to work itself into a lot of his films, you know. But um, yeah, so as as a filmmaker, as or as a technician, I don't I don't see necessarily a lot of creativity with his camera work. But again, with that, I think that's. That's an approach in and of itself, you know. Mm-hmm. That's that's a style, right? 
Yeah, because it's you know very rudimentary to have a, you know this is the story is telling the you know the film. Yeah. You know, and the characters are acting. The you know, and that's all they need to do. Right. You know. Yeah. And it tells great stories. I mean, you know, can rattle off like twenty films that you know you actually enjoy. You know what I mean? Not just like twenty films that I know, but twenty great Woody Allen films that I would watch again. Sure. You know? so. He's made forty something movies yeah. in his career. Uh, the, I don't know of a filmmaker who can who really push that. Sidney yeah. Lumet, maybe, mm-hmm. yeah, or maybe um, some of the really early, uh, not early, but perhaps like I don't know, Michael Curtiz, some of the, um, you know, studio. Well, yeah, more like the studio, yeah, high, you know, director for hire type of people. Yeah, John Ford, you know, people made, like look uh, at the, made uh, like three movies a year. <laughs> yeah, look, look at the the actors that have been in Woody Allen films, you know, mm-hmm. ones that you would expect and ones you wouldn't expect. I mean, it's quite a. Oh, I know. But people line up to, you know, work with him, you know. When, you know, I think, and, you know, he doesn't really give much direction to the actors. So, I mean, it's more or less just the prestige of being in a Woody Allen film as opposed to, you know, what I can learn from being in sure. a Woody Allen film, you know. He says that there's a, a misconception that people are lining up, that great actors are mm-hmm. lining up dying to be in his films. Uh, he, he definitely, he kind of understates, I think, a lot of his own yeah. greatness, I think, but... Um, he said he claims Woody Allen introduced claims that you know when it comes down to it, if their schedule is right, if, if things line up and they're mm-hmm. and they're willing to accept uh, accept very little pay, right, um, then it, it often works out. He says, but it's not on an automatic thing. Does mm-hmm. he ask them and then they, you know people? It's, it's like to be asked. It's by always Woody through Allen? his casting director Julia mm-hmm. Taylor. Okay, um, from what I from what I gather that he'll. Uh, He'll see, you know, their work, and often he, there's, there's, especially with a lot of the young actors, uh, he, he'll never have seen them before, and so it's up to her. That her she's actually uh, a great asset to him that she'll see a lot of, you know, more recent films with more um, popular actors from, yeah, like Emma Stone or yeah, you know, and, and he'll Scarlett Johansson. He'll probably and a lot of the time will never have heard of them, mm-hmm. and she'll say, you know, bring in a clip or something. Yeah, Louis C.K. <laughs> yeah, but it's legendary that the, the casting. Um, or the casting meetings or the, the initial meetings between these actors and Woody Allen are, are legendary. Like, I guess you'll, you'll have like great renowned actors like sitting in like a, a dark studio room in New York, like by themselves, like, okay. And, and then in will come Woody Allen and just talk to him for like him or her for like 30 seconds and then just leave. Mm-hmm. And there's no readings. There's mm-hmm. no conversations. Just sort of like, yeah, you're good for it. Yeah. Well, he has an eclectic, you know, mix of people in his films, too. Like, you know, mentioning Louis C.K. And, you know, in that same film, Andrew Dice Clay. Right. You know, <laughs> That's and who did a terrific job in that movie, you know. And Casting is an absolute Who would have thought, you he's, know. He's, yeah. He's a brilliant uh, cast, right. casting You know, director. that performance that Kate Blanchett gives in there is, you know, phenomenal. And she was nominated, right? Did yeah, she, she won. Oh, she won. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Oh, well, very well deserved. Yeah. Um, and so he, and he says that if you cast, if you know the right actor for mm-hmm. your for your script and you cast you don't have to be kind of like a uh, Orson Welles style you know let's let's talk for hours about your role kind of thing yeah. he says, who is your character you know <laughs> yeah. let them do their thing and he says mm-hmm. he even encourages them to change their lines he says mm-hmm. these, are, these are just suggestions if you say anything that seems more natural he, mm-hmm. he is not someone who needs the script to be verbatim right so And the bell will ring. We are actually classroom critics, and so we, we are honestly in a classroom, and we honestly have bells with students going from class to class. We are the real deal here. <laughs> and so you are going to hear a bell, 
and we will kind of try to ignore it. It's not it's not a special effect added later for right. effect. Right? We are not going to edit it out. See, there it goes. Ah. Actually, it's not a bell. It's a, it's a, it's a beep. We, right. <laughs> it's a beacon of hope. <laughs> and the, the, we're always asking, especially our music students, what note is that that the mm. bell hits? That's something flat. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, in this film, I think... Um, Annie Hall obviously is, is very well cast. Um, I can't envision anyone else but Diane Keaton playing Annie Hall. Um, well, I mean, it's her name too. So, did he write it for yeah. her? I mean, was that the? Yeah, you know, I think it, you know yeah. well, the movie. Her name is actually you know her actual name is Hall, you know, and um, you know Diane Annie. So that was her mm-hmm. childhood nickname. So yeah, it's her. And uh, just I love just the appearances of, of you know various notables are soon to be notables like Christopher Walken mm-hmm. I mean that scene is yeah the next awesome. year he won the Oscar yeah you know, for you know, Deer Hunter Deer Hunter yeah, yeah. you know it's, it's still yeah. even at I don't know he was pretty young in this film mm-hmm. but he's still Christopher Walken you know right. pays no attention to the punctuation drive into a car <laughs> him Goldblum Sigourney Weaver mm-hmm. yeah Paul Simon Paul Simon mm-hmm. who can act Truman Capote right. as Truman, Truman Capote <laughs> walks by yeah. one of Charlie's Angels Right. Mm-hmm. Who was the okay? The girl who in the second lobster scene. She looks so familiar to me, and I couldn't. Yeah, uh, I don't think I know who that is. Uh, Probably. Yeah. I have to look it up, but yeah. I, I kept saying I, there's something about her. Mm-hmm. I knew her. There is an actor in the the scene where he's waiting in front of the movie theater for her to to arrive. The one we referenced <coughs> earlier, mm-hmm. and uh, the guy who comes up to him, you know, oh, we sing. And, and Woody Allen does say, you know, I'm standing here with the cast of The Godfather, mm-hmm. and literally two of the three people, at least, I don't know about the other guy. Uh, are from The Godfather. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the guy who, you know, says that is, you know, he was in the scene um, where Sonny is beating up uh, the uh, brother-in-law yeah. mm-hmm. in that movie. Yeah. Or nominees, even. Or nominees, yeah. you know, bounty of because, yeah. like, in interiors, you know, like, um, what's her name? Um, Geraldine Page got nominated for that for Best Actress. Mm-hmm. You know. Well, obviously, um, Diane Keaton. Chad and Diane Keaton. And, now, um, Diane Weiss won Diane Weiss. for Sporting Actress. Sporting, okay. Yeah, Michael Caine won for Sporting for Anna yeah. and Her Sisters. Right. You know, so there's it, been that, too. I mean, it, what is it about his his writing that makes um, you know, his female characters are so interesting? But they're not one-dimensional. They're, you know, real people, and they have phobias, and they have neuroses just like he does, and they're, you know, and then they're not all their neuroses and phobias. You know, they have other dimensions to him as well. I mean, you could argue that Annie's a more, you know, normal person from Annie Hall and, you know, kind of lives a happier life as a result, so she's maybe the more evolved and accomplished person, too, you know, and leaves him because of the fact that, you know, she's leaving him behind, you know. Mm-hmm. So, and then, you know, and even the character in Blue Jasmine, there were, you know, Kate Blanchett's character, you know, Lisa was, you know, some, there was a lot of dimension to her as well, you know, like, what a role to play, and it's not, you know, just over dramatic or anything like that is you know multi-dimensional mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. his soundtracks mm-hmm. are interesting yeah and well, it's like you know what was it Sweet and Lowdown yes you know it's brilliant yeah, that's I, another nominee Sean Penn got nominated for that yeah you know, and I mean, so did Samantha Morton for supporting um, yeah that's a great great one mm-hmm. but you know his soundtracks uh, I mean one thing about Woody Allen movie it's it's all from his Record collection, right. basically, you know. Mm-hmm. But who would you know, other than really jazz enthusiasts, who had really heard of Django Reinhardt? Right. Know? Oh yeah. You know? Right. Right. And um, 
you know, you can you can almost hear the scratch record scratches mm-hmm. on, on all this, you know, jazz sounds right. as if like he just pulled it from the shelf and said. So he, he never gets, he never has original music. Or, I no. mean, I can't think of a, an example of original music in any of his. Even um, his only musical, Everyone Says I Love You, mm-hmm. is right. uh, Cole Porter's song. Yeah, yeah. Just, just stuff adapted. <clears throat> um, but interestingly enough, there is no uh, soundtrack, there's no music to Annie Hall. It's just mm-hmm. source music. Right. Um, you know, the credits, uh, the, the title cards at the beginning and at the end are just, it's, it's silence. And the only music you hear is coming from a radio or from a car. Right. And she sings things like old times at the end. Right. And, and I, I wonder, why is that the right choice for this film? Is it... <laughs> that way there's no distractions. There's nothing, yeah. no elements, you know, taking away from the plot, taking away from the acting. Right. You know? Well, as you're also talking about this being, you know, Woody Allen's really first bridge into blending of serious filmmaking, you know, with, with his comedy, uh, whereas... You know, oftentimes directors rely on music to tell us, oh, you're supposed to feel inspired here, you're supposed to feel sad, you're supposed to feel nervous. You know, they, they look at how much the music in Jaws added to mm-hmm. you know, yeah, the really anxiety. Good. Whereas he's saying, no, the, the story's arising from the story, from the characters, the mm-hmm. acting, uh, and yeah. that sort of thing, which, you know, I think was a wise choice. This film would be vastly different if in those emotional moments we had a violin swell right. or something. Yeah. If, um, if if I think in Match Point, not to interrupt you, but Match Point, it definitely, the music really is an integral part to it as well because of the fact that, you know, the opera background to it, yep. you know, and it isn't, essentially the story is an opera. Sure, sure. You know? But I just wonder, you know, with this film, you know, the music could have um, played a similar role, but each, I, one thing I could think of is that, you know, he has said, and he has admitted as such, that he is aspired and um, he's always sort of wished he's been, he had been more of a, Bergman style of film, mm-hmm. like he, he'd prefer to be that kind of filmmaker versus, let's say, uh, you know, a comedic filmmaker. He mm-hmm. says, but since his GIF is in comedy, it seems to, you know, uh, err on that side of, of things. But um, this was this was his first film that sort of lent itself to some, you know, more serious drama. Um, and Bergman uh, has said in interviews that he thinks that music and film is. He thinks it's vulgar, you know. It's mm-hmm. that's kind of a, a rarity in a Bergman film, uh, and he pr- prefers not to have any music whatsoever. So perhaps right. this is just. A, it's kind of hard to have music when you have death walking around, <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, like, what music are you going to play for that? Yeah. On the sunny side of the street. I mean, Beethoven's what? Fifth, thing. right? Well, I mean, I know you know <clears throat> from directing shows and such too that people take comedy for granted. I mean, good comedy, not mm-hmm. comedy where you laugh at somebody. You know, but but comedy where the laughs arise from character and delivery and interplay is much harder than drama. Mm-hmm. Most yeah. actors you can put in front of a camera and say emote, but very few can you say be funny. Right. You know, I, I'll point to Tom Cruise there. You know, people, he, he's not funny. He's nope. he was funny in Tropic Thunder. He was funny in uh, um, uh, Risky Business. Mm-hmm. Although if, if you watch yeah. the film, he's not as funny in that film as the film is funny. But. But comedy's hard, and, and it's very rare that comedic actors or comedies win these awards. And so, you know, he, he may have seen himself falling short of not achieving the dramatic over as, as Bergman, but I think that what he's achieved has been actually a lot more difficult. I think most of his dramas, too, have been great dramas, yeah. you know, to some degree. Like, we talked about interiors, that's definitely a Bergman feel oh, to yeah, it. No. You know, and, um, you know, how many, like we mentioned September, Another Woman, you know, films like that. Match know. point. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's so, point I think was a crimes of misdemeanors. Triumph, yeah, yeah. 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 So he does. I think he does have that 
that gift mm-hmm. um, for, for drama as well as, as comedy. So he's, he's a very, I think he's he's versatile. He's and I think they're accessible too. I think a lot of times you know like the common man's not necessarily going to gravitate towards a Bergman film, but they would more so I think to a Woody Allen film. Yeah, you know, is Woody Allen's comedy? Um, would you say? Whenever a Woody Allen film is, is released, it's often um, kind of marginalized, uh, or it, it, it doesn't get a widespread um, showings. It, it's, mm-hmm. you, have to, you have to kind of search for them often. Right. You know, wh- why would you say that's the case? I mean, why doesn't he have the box office appeal of uh, I don't know, say um, a Steven Spielberg, Spielberg, or, Spielberg or, or yeah. you know, in Michael terms Bay. of in terms of comedy, you know, mm-hmm. obviously an Adam Sandler comedy yeah, is going. Is going to obviously be shown everywhere, mm-hmm. and uh, it'll make more money in its first, you know, debut night right. than Woody Allen probably in its whole. Well, I think whole you run. know Woody Allen films have always been word of mouth too. Like you know, amongst people, you know, like I would talk about that film with people that I think would enjoy it, you know, and then suggest seeing it, you know. And I think there's kind of like a buzz about a Woody Allen film. You know, everybody, especially people who are fans, you know, like anticipate the film of the year, you know, and when he releases his film. In, you know, in hot anticipation of it or whatever, but yeah. you know, a film like Midnight in Paris that did play at the Cinemaplex, you know, eventually. Yeah. You know, it started out at the indie theater and you know did the debut in Newark and Los Angeles. You know, the next week kind of like limited, you know, release, and then you know the word of mouth for that was just so phenomenal that it just kind of exploded and right. it played here in you know Tingsboro, you know, which sure. is you know an unusual. I, I saw it to Rome with Love at Tingsboro. Okay. You know, so it is getting wider play. Yeah. I remember actually in college um, when I was first getting into Woody Allen's work, um, I went to see Celebrity, mm-hmm. and uh, it was, it's interesting because it's Leonardo DiCaprio's think follow-up, if I'm not mistaken. It, it came up pretty close after yeah. Titanic, right? And I just a remember, year later, yeah. Yeah, and I remember going to see um, Celebrity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it kind of escaped me that DiCaprio was in it, but I remember going to see it, and then. Some of the theater was actually filled with uh, with Caprio girls, fans, yeah, yeah, like t- you know, teenage expecting girls. Expecting it to be like, yeah, and, and I, honestly, I remember like them like looking at this movie like, what did I get myself what into? What the hell is yeah. this? Right. You know, well, uh, first of all, where, when's 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 Leo coming on the screen? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. and he basically has a cameo in the movie, right? But um, so there's there's something about Woody Allen's work that doesn't have uh, mass appeal, um, and. Uh, and nor should it. I mean, you know, like we were talking before, you know, when he said that he'd love to do a, you know, Western or something like that, you know, perhaps that'd ruin his, you know, appeal, you know, perhaps that, you know, trying to, you know, make the blockbuster would, you know, ruin what is Woody Allen, what is unique about and great about Woody Allen, you know? Mm-hmm. Every, every film I've seen released by him in the last 10 years, I think, is, is it, it follows the same pattern. The critics comment on, you know, wonderful actors and how great a filmmaker he is, but that there's no fanfare and that perhaps this is not, you know, perhaps his appeal is fading and then it just continues to endure. Right. Uh, you know, it's, it's those things, I think, when you watch his films, if you enjoy him, they're rich, but they, they get richer with repeated viewings. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. there's more to them than people think. And I think it doesn't have, you know, there's no CGI, there's no special effects, there's no artificial angst uh, against fighting aliens, against saving the world. And so, you know, it's a, a style of film that isn't necessarily always in fashion, but is always there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. 
when I see one of it, uh, sometimes some of his films won't, you know, will have lukewarm reviews. Right, Irrational Man last year. Yeah, and I'll, I'll view these films and I'll say, this is this is really good. Yeah. Okay, so I sometimes don't understand. Yeah. Um, like you will meet a tall, dark stranger. Like I don't yeah. think that came around here at all, you know, except in like Cambridge or whatever. Sure. And you know, I rented it and thought it was a really good film. Right. You right. Know? So he's or almost like held to a different Sandra's standard. Dream. Right. You know? Right. But if you you know you see too like you take a great musician like Paul Simon since he was in Annie Hall and and you know he has his great appeal with Simon and Garfunkel and then his solo career he's always been on and off the radar I mean for every Graceland there's been a Hearts and Bones which hasn't caught on even though musically it's it's just as good and yet you know every now and then from this long catalog these masterpieces emerge or these things that the public deems a masterpiece. But, you know, it just astonishes me, you know, with Woody Allen, that for as long as he's been making films, he, he doesn't seem to have run out of ideas or become mm-hmm. artistically stale. Yeah, I don't feel like he's telling the same story over and over again either, you right. know, that there's something unique about each movie. He says that when he when it's time to make another movie, which is every single year, he'll uh, go into his drawer, his, and actually I've seen footage of this, and in his room he has a... Uh, looks like a nightstand or something, and he'll, he'll open up the drawer and it's filled with scraps of paper. Uh, because he'll be going throughout his day, or uh, being so, you know, just he'll scribble down like a notion, an idea, mm-hmm. you know, like um, you know, whatever, you know, just think of any of the premises of, of his films, and he'll write it down, and he'll just throw it into his drawer. When it's time to make another movie, he'll open that drawer and he'll look in it, and he'll, you know, look at some of these papers and say, oh, you know, that, that doesn't work, that's crap, and he'll, and he'll, find, he'll find something. No, I like I like that. You know, and he'll he'll revisit something that like a notion or something that perhaps he had in the seventies. Like uh, the film Whatever Works was mm-hmm. actually a film that he wrote for uh, Zero Mostel back in the seventies, um, and with the with um, the exact scenario. I think it had to do with um, the strike, the writer's strike. Mm-hmm. I think was was the case why he didn't write an original script that year uh, when he made Whatever Works. I th- I don't know why it would have something to do with him. Maybe but it he, was actually released? When, when he actually, the, when it was time for him to sit down and write a film, mm-hmm. uh, the, which eventually became Whatever Works, mm-hmm. he used an old script. So maybe it was him sitting out right. in, so I think in solidarity with the other writers. Yeah. So, uh, but anyhow, it's just, it's, it's just amazing that he is so uh, prolific mm-hmm. with all these ideas. It's just that it's, it's never ending, you know. All right, well, that is going to conclude, I think, unless you have anything else to yeah. say. There's I look forward th- to the next Woody Allen film. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm looking forward to the one coming out this summer. Oh, yeah, yeah. This the, the, as usual, the unnamed Woody Allen project, mm-hmm. right? Yep. He's very secret. I think secretive. it does have a name now, but I can't remember it? what it is. Yeah. yeah. But maybe it'll be a Western. Yeah. <laughs> Midnight in something. Mm-hmm. Midnight in Nashua. <laughs> Midnight in Tombstone. <laughs> We are the Classroom Critics, and uh, we apologize for the, uh, the real-time interruptions. We are really in a classroom, really in a school, but that's what makes this podcast unique, and we hope that you will join us next time, and please go on to uh, iTunes, look up Classroom Critics, rate us, tell us what you think, uh, like us, friend us, whatever the term is. Um, give us feedback. Give us feedback. We'd Be love kind. to hear it. <laughs> Be kind. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you, folks.